When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He said there's going to be big changes here, really big changes. And you should, you might be, you know, you might do well to get out while the going's good in terms of your, you know, rather than seeing what's going to happen here. And, you know, a nod's as good as a wink. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Live Through That. I'm Mike Kippel, and on this podcast, we'll dig a little deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in my book, Live Through That. You can get yourself a copy of the book now and use promo code PODCAST15 to get 15% off. You can find the link on the main page of this podcast. Today, our guest is Wesley Stace, who recorded under the name John Wesley Harding in the 80s and 90s. He had a trio of great albums out in the early 90s on Sire Records, but he was ultimately itching to move forward in a different creative direction. Today, he brings us a story in two parts. The first, the launching of his career, and the second, the owning of his own creative path. It was an amazing start for me. I put out my first album, which... I decided to be a brutally honest first album recorded live, which I don't think, I mean, some people have done that, but it's not a a usual career move. But I didn't feel it made much of a connection in England. I didn't see any particularly exciting reviews about it. Various people made criticisms of it for me being an acoustic, if you like, social comment or protest singer, you know, from Cambridge University. They thought that was... You know, it was, it was Billy Bragg. Nobody was even allowed to play acoustic guitars in England at the time. Only Billy Bragg was allowed to, and he played an electric guitar, um, even though, you know, the songs were what, in previous years, people might have just sung on an acoustic guitar, but an electric guitar looked a little more, you know, modern, I suppose. Um, so, but I did hear wind that, uh, did get wind that the, it happened one night, that live album, kind of people were listening to it in America and so it was always in the back of my mind hmm, maybe America's got a longer memory for the acoustic guitar than England has right now and my manager of the time Glenn Colson uh, took me in to see Seymour Stein and in his office and it's a story I've told many times and I played him three or four songs including The Devil in Me and he said, oh, that would be a good single. I'm going to introduce you to your producer later today, Andy Paley, who happened to be in town in London on Baker Street, having just uh, produced the Brian Wilson album, Love and Mercy. Met Andy. He was one of the greatest guys I'd ever met. We had a connection immediately. Um, he was coming. Uh, we got a band together. He was excited to work with the attractions, plus a guitarist called Steve Donnelly, fantastic guitarist, now sadly passed away and also a keyboard player called Kenny Craddock who'd been 
Van Morrison's MD and was in the band Lindisfarne and uh, produced Alan Hull's great solo album, Pipe Dream. And he coincidentally lived in Hastings, which is where I was from. So that was the band. It was Pete and Bruce Thomas on the bass and drums, um, Steve Donnelly and Kenny Craddock. And because of, well, where we used to drink in the pub, but also my manager's friends, he'd been head of, uh, 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 well, I don't know if he'd been head of it, but he certainly did press at Stiff. And before that, he did press at Charisma. So he was very much, uh, you know, new people and was a figure on the scene. And I think because we were able to put together that fantastic band, Andy and Si were more into it. And they gave me money to, well, they didn't give me money. They got me studio time at Eden in Chiswick to get that band together with Andy producing. He was just coming over to do four or five songs. During that recording session, you can imagine how exciting it was to be making my first album for Sire. Howie Klein was flown in, and I think Glenn and I kind of had the impression that Howie was flown in to actually perhaps scotch the deal and say, you know, we're putting out a lot of stuff at the moment and th these should only be considered demos and, you know, maybe this isn't going to be a full album. Uh, and I think that's the truth of it. But in fact, he loved what he heard. And, and so the album continued to get made in, I think, two different sessions in England. And then they flew me over to America where we did the singing and the, some backing vocals and all kind of polished the record off and got it mixed at Sunset Sound Studios in L.A. They were fantastic. was fantastic. The bass they gave me in America was fantastic. Sire was part of WEA. They had men and reprise records. They had there were many artists who were fantastic on those labels that made everybody else on the label look extremely good. And they put me on a tour with the Mighty Lemon Drops and the Ocean Blue. I'd never heard of the Ocean Blue uh, because they were a kind of a, um, an American response to the English, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen type bands and very good too. And uh, I was third on the bill to them. And so there was a kind of, I don't know, Mighty Lemon Drops were a pretty good, loud, rock band and the ocean blue before them and me with an acoustic guitar at the beginning ludicrous tour but it totally for want of a better word broke my name in america so i had made three albums for sire records after i was signed by seymour stein and uh, the first two were produced by Andy Paley, who the first one of those two, Here Comes the Groom, was very, very exciting to make. And on the second one, we they hadn't, I think, expected it to, you know, get a, a lot of, I don't know what, but it, it did well enough for there to be a second one. And the second one, we kind of repeated what we'd done on the first one, but with horns, which wasn't a terribly satisfying experience. So by the third one, I wanted to make a change and basically make the music a little more acoustic-y. So I did an album uh, produced by Steve Berlin called Why We Fight. And it, that was really the first album I felt I was on top of things during. Uh, on the first, um, here comes the, on the first two, here comes the groom and name above the title. Um, I was playing with the attractions and they were a big loud band and I was just trying to fit in amongst everything my songs were fully written they weren't collaborated on in the studio but some of the um arrangements were 
I just felt that the, the songs I'd originally written got a bit lost in them. And there was one particular song called Long Time Gone on Name Above the Title. And I wrote it as a very, in my mind, Richard Thompson-y kind of dour, down love song. And what came out of the studio was a kind of E Street Band rocker with castanets on it. It was most bizarre. And I mean, I was trying to get on top of why that had happened. So with Why We Fight, I very much stripped back and had a much more acoustic type band with a kind of a stand-up bass and a percussionist rather than a drummer. And it was really a step in a direction that I felt I wanted to go on. But right around that time, um, Howie Klein, who was my great ally at Sire and um, Seymour Stein's, I would say, right-hand man, consigliere, he said, there's gonna be big changes here, really big changes. And you should, you might be, you know, you might do well to get out while the going's good in terms of your, you know, rather than seeing what's going to happen here. And, you know, a nod's as good as a wink. So I thought, okay, well, it's time for me to do something else. And at that exact moment, I had a dream, which was actually rather unpleasant in content, and I won't <laughs> go into it, but it very much told me that the music I was making live and the records I were making, I was making or had made, were too loud, big, uh, I don't know what, just too much. So I was lit I'd moved to San Francisco and I'd made some musical friends there and I suddenly thought, well, why do I need to even go to a big studio? Why do I need to have a band playing along on everything. Why can't I just go in and record the acoustic guitar and then build the track up from that so that the acoustic guitar and I am central to the recording, which is how it should be. There were moments on my first two albums, by the way, I loved the experience of making those records so much. Andy Paley was fantastic. Everybody was so encouraging. I was really loving the sound of the rock music and everything. But there were times when I played the acoustic guitar as the band played the song to track it, to record it. And then we'd take the acoustic guitar out because all it ever sounded like in the track was like some tambourines or percussion. And I didn't want that. I wanted the guitar and my voice to be front and center. And so when I was living in San Francisco, I'd met this guy called Chris Von Snyden who had a basement studio on a street called Ord Street and I'm very happy to say that that was this was 1990 whatever it was four or something like that and the year is now 2021 and Chris von Snyden has produced my new record that perhaps we'll talk about in a moment and he's done that record too and he's done many in the middle so this is an incredibly lengthy um, collaborative partnership, creative partnership we've had for many, many years of, of friendship and, and working together. And I went to his basement and I said, and I can't remember the order of events exactly, but I was like, well, I've got some songs. Let's just start recording them and let's start with me and the, me and the guitar. And occasionally we go, well, maybe we could record that with a drum, some drums, but only if they come in here. And, I w and it was just me and him. It was him at the console. We worked on ADATs in those days. So it was like endlessly loading VHS tapes into a VHS tape recorder. And he'd got the whole system down 
and uh, and that's how we started making the New Deal record. And that was the record. I mean, I could be much more specific about certain bits of it, but that was the record on which, for the first time, I took my own music into my own hands. I took full responsibility for it and said, this is my exact vision of how I want this to be. It was a very cheap, cheap album to make. I was just paying him by the hour and occasionally we'd get other musicians in to play stuff on it. And so I got my best ally, Robert Lloyd, up from LA for a few days to play the keyboard parts. And Greg Lease happened to be coming through town playing with Katie Lang. And he came and did the amazing um, lap steel and um, like pedal steel and electric guitar stuff on it. Um, and it was a very beautiful album to make. Yeah, that was recorded in my house, you know, because I record my records in my house and Wes heard my records and thought, well, let's do that. This is producer Chris von Snydern. He works very quickly. He knows what he wants. He likes things to kind of go toward the, the simplistic sort of outcome. So it's always, you know, I would be more inclined to indulge in experiments and get lost. And he would be like, okay, now. Great. All right. Let's be done with that. You know, and it would, we would work very quickly. And he always had tons of songs. You know, I mean, the the best ones were the ones that made it. But there were so many that he's released uh, subsequently on his sort of little bootleg series. And, you know, New Deal is sort of, you know, some songs are, very simple, just one guitar and a voice, and then sometimes, you know, two guitars, or I'd play a bass, or put a shaker on it, you know. And then on a few songs, we went, we'd taken these terrible ADAT tapes to uh, to another studio, you know, because they were like, they're basically little VHS tapes that recorded digital audio. So we took him to another studio to put the drums on uh, "Kiss Me, Miss Liberty," and and then um and then we went to the Great American Music Hall and put the piano on it. It was it was very uh, non traditional remote style recording, uh, which is kind of what people do now, except it's just a laptop. I remember one of the things that happened was I didn't have a record label for it. And I wasn't looking even for a record label. I just wanted to make this album that I was going to make and it was going to be the album I wanted. And and finally, I got a new manager and the new manager uh, hooked me up with Rhino Records, who were happy to release it. And that was really, you know, and that was the moment to me that I, this record, John Wesley Harding's New Deal, it's a very San Francisco record to me. And um, it was it was the the record really that to which the other three records had been a prologue. In fact, the other four records, because I first had a live record in England called It Happened One Night in 1988. And then Here Comes the Groom was 1990. Named by the title was 1991. Why We Fight, which was a step in the very much the right direction, was 92 or three. And then New Deal probably came out 94 or five. And uh, and it was the you know it was the moment when I I started as a as a recording artist taking responsibility for everything I did and it was a beautiful experience and we made another album after that one called Awake much the same but I, I try never to make the same album twice 
And um, that was another of my criticisms of Name Above the Title, my second album. I felt it was just like Here Comes the Groom when I should have really ripped straight to Why We Fight and blown some minds at that moment. So to me, it's the beginning of the whole story of my career. Thank you, Wesley, for such a great story. Be sure to check out his latest album, Late Style, to get a feel for where his creative direction has gone. And be sure to revisit his classic album, John Wesley Harding's New Deal. Without further ado, here are some of Wesley's current inspirations. First, in particular reference to the Late Style album, is the music of Gary McFarlane, the jazz arranger and vibes player, who uh, there is a fantastic documentary about that's been recently available. I think the director is called Christian St. Clair. I happened to meet him at a house concert in outside Seattle quite recently. So I think he must live up there somewhere. It is a, it, Gary McFarlane was a beautiful arranger of beautiful music, no stranger to social commentary himself. He, his movement was the soft samba movement. Um, if it was a movement where he was doing, you know, Beatles songs in a very soft, beautiful style. He kind of fell be between two stools, one being pop music, because he wasn't quite pop enough, he was too jazz. And the jazz people, I think, were probably perhaps a little nonplussed by his albums of sung lyrics and him whistling on everything and humming along and singing in a rather sometimes not trained voice but beautifully he has a fantastic song called wine and bread on an album called the in sound that is to me the exact image uh, or the, the this the symbol of the perfection of what i kind of wanted my album of socially interested and uh, involved lyrics with a beautiful uh, stylish New, groovy jazz playing in the background and I highly recommend all his recordings to everybody he died in a most terrible way his drink was spiked in a bar in the village in New York by I think a, some kind of a merry prankster or somebody hoping to get everybody high for fun and he went outside and had a heart attack so that was the end of Gary McFarlane but I absolutely adore his records they range from almost Axelrod-like experimentation, America the Beautiful, to crazily hip and fantastic jazz. And also, I mean, he arranged records for Anito Day and um, Cal Jada and, um, oh, I've got so many of them. They're still so fantastic. So Gary McFarland is beautiful. Secondly, I'd also like to put in a word for the TV comedy Ted Lasso, which I know a lot of people have been enjoying. My family certainly has. It's the thing that has more united me and my 12-year-old son over the television than anything else. It's a beautiful show, just right for the moment when it aired, when we were all feeling a little weary and a little separated from everybody and a little... Um, a little isolated even within our own family unit as it were our, we might have been together but the family was isolated from everybody else and i think ted lasso i don't love that phrase is the show we need now but i do feel 
that it added a real warmth in its humour. I mean, of course, I'm English and I want to see a comedy, a good comedy about football and Jeepers Creepers. There have been very, very few good dramas at all or com comedy dramas. And by extension, if that's 2A, I'll also say that another great drama, a comedy drama, it's not a comedy, it's more of a drama, is called Home Ground, that I think is on Netflix. And it's, as Ted Lasso is the first American coach in the English Premier League in Home Ground, she is the first female coach in the, let me get this right, in the, Norway, the Norwegian Men's League. So it's very much the same, fish out of water, are they there? Have they been given the job just to destroy the club or are they brilliant and are they going to rescue it? And there's many similar scenes in both of them. So those were two beautiful television shows that kept me going. And a third thing that was very inspiring to me was projects, particularly books. I made a couple of books during the last year, one via Lulu, which is one of those services, and another via a local uh, press here in Philadelphia. The first one was the Late Style Lyric book that, that I put together. Both of these I did in collaboration with my friend Tim Wood. And then the next was uh, a thing that kept me going during lockdown was the fact that my first opera, um, for which I only wrote the words, the music was written by a Belizean-born composer called Erilyn Wallen. And um, our, our opera uh, world premiered at the Barbican at the beginning of June, I couldn't go, just, um, but I saw the live stream of it. And then was at the Buxton International Festival, which just finished and is going to the Edinburgh International Festival. I'm very much hoping to get there. And so I'm looking at it now. I made a, my libretto I printed up as a little book purely to give away to the people who were in the uh, opera whom, whom I hadn't met and couldn't get over to England to see. And also... Oh, another lockdown project was I did, uh, oh, it's a long story, but anyway, to, to promote that or as a thank you to those performers, I should say, I made a beautiful ceramic tile with the cover of this album, The Good Liar, which featured all these generous performers, Roseanne Cash and Graham Parker, all doing versions of my songs, uh, requested, here's the key thing, not by me, but by my audience on Facebook. So I had the Facebook friends ask, say who they would like to cover what song. And if I knew that person, I just rang them up and said, would you do it? And almost everybody said yes. So and then we gave the money to the Sweet Relief charity, the proceeds when we put finally put it up online. So that was a really that was another project. So I'm talking about projects as my third one, Lulu and uh Philadelphia other book that I did and also the ceramic tile those are really nice and in fact that's taken that's progressed a little because ever since then I've, I'm now getting the bundles for late style ready and those are some pretty uh some pretty elaborate bits of stuff in there too so I've enjoyed making things this year and the fourth thing I think would be the uh, perhaps a nod to the Summer of Soul film and also the Nina Simone documentary and I, and also the Teddy Pendergrass documentary they just had up there recently, all of which I recommend thoroughly. The music of Nina Simone was very inspirational to me with this 
record Late Style because of the way she did singer-songwriter songs. So she covered a lot of Dylan, Randy Newman. She covered a lot of... Uh, um, did she do Leonard Cohen? Yes. Bee Gees. And when you hear Nina Simone doing them, you realize how those singer-songwriter songs can sound so beautiful and groovy and jazzy with her singing them. And that was a real inspiration to me making this record. One of the songs on the record is called Do Nothing If You Can, and it's certainly inspired by the music of Teddy Pendergrass. And one of the music reasons it's inspired by that, and this is all a bit sad, is that every time day I take my kids to school, I take them via uh, Lincoln Drive, and we pass the place where Teddy Pendergrass had his accident that turned him into a, was, was it a quadriplegic? I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I think that's what it was. Um, and, you know, he had a car crash late at night and he couldn't walk anymore. So all the rest of his music after that, he made, I suppose, from his wheelchair. And uh, so I think of Teddy Pendergrass so often, every day, when I pass this spot. And that led me into saying to David, hey, you remember that time we were listening to Love TKO on our way to that gig in Jersey? And what an amazing, you know, this lyric, I think, could suit that kind of arrangement. What do you, what do you think? And he gave me the precise song I wanted. That's it for today's episode. Please be sure to also check out my book, Live Through That, available everywhere now for more stories and photos. Remember, you can get 15% off using the promo code PODCAST15 by ordering at the link on the podcast page. And if you like this show, please subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. We'll be taking a break for a few weeks over the holiday, but back in 2022 with some more great new stories to share. Thanks for joining us. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.